unique. Unique is a fun word, at least I think it's a fun word to say, the word unique. You know what that word means? The word unique means there's only one like it. It's unlike uh, anything else. This time of year we think about snowflakes, and to us they just look like white things falling from the sky, but actually snowflakes are unique. You are unique. You are distinctive. Uh, There's only one like you. Some people, folks wish there were more of them. Others of us, people say, thank the Lord that you're it, that you are unique and you are the only one. One of the things that makes the Gospel of Matthew unique is that it is the only gospel where the wise men's visit to Jesus is recorded. Now, the song is We Three Kings, but if you actually read the text, we don't really know how many kings there are. Uh, The Bible does not tell us. What we know is the number of gifts that they brought, and that is where some of that uh, comes from. But did you know that there's only one gospel that tells us about the wise men's visit? So there's something about that unique story that God wants you to know. And so this morning, I want us to ask the Lord to open us up to our King Jesus that we have sung to and that we have praised in song. We need to ask the Lord to open us up to King Jesus and to ask the Lord to have a willing heart to allow the Lord to show us through this unique story what is it that God wants us to know about Himself and His kingdom from this one and only time that this story is told. I want you to listen again with new ears. Listen closely. Maybe you've grown up on this story. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it, whatever the case may be. Listen carefully and closely to this very unique story that the Holy Spirit moved upon Matthew to share. Matthew chapter 2. Now when Jesus, Matthew 2 says, go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So these wise men come, the days of Herod, Jesus has been born, and these wise men come, and wise men uh, ask good questions, and they can answer good questions. What What question do they have? Verse 2 of chapter 2, They came saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard these things, when he heard them asking, Where is the king? He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Uh, it's never good when you have two people that want the throne. Uh, we don't have kings, but we have elections, and they don't even get to, presidents don't even get to serve for life. Uh, their reign is always temporary. But think about the way we get impassioned about elections. Now imagine that that's forever the person that's going to be on the throne, and then there imagine there's somebody else that wants to take it. So Jerusalem is troubled because these wise men, uh, these these intelligent men, have shown up, and they are asking, where is this other king? Herod is troubled in all the world, or at least represented there in Jerusalem with him. 
when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them, he demands of these visitors, where Christ, where the Messiah, where the Savior should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And they quote apparently from Micah, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judea are not the least, are you not the least among the princes of Judah? But or four out of you shall come a governor, a ruler, that shall rule my people Israel. Now this knowledge of Scripture has led many to conclude to believe, to give their best educated guess. We know they come from the east. We know that in the exile that the, the Medes and the Persians, first the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, the children of Israel were taken into exile. Maybe you know the story of Daniel that rose to be a leader among the wise men of both the Babylonian Empire and then when it fell, the, the Persian Empire that replaced it. We know that Daniel was the chief among the wise men in that empire. So many have thought and said that the Magi, they come uh, from Persia and they have knowledge of these things perhaps through Daniel and through uh, what he may have shared with these other wise men that he was the, the, the leader of. Could be that. It could be that these are Jews, that, that maybe they're just Jews that uh, live. Remember, Jews have been in exile. Some of them come home to Jerusalem. Some of them stay in these communities where they've been moved to. These could be, these could be Jews that have risen like Daniel to places of prominence wherever they are, but they know they know the the promise, whatever it is, God has led them there. God has used this star to guide and to lead them to where they need to be. Verse 7, then Herod, when he in privately called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently. So he asked in front of everybody, where's this guy at? And then he has a private meeting, and he wants to know very, uh, very precisely, when did the star appear? And you might think, praise the Lord, he wants to know so when it appeared so he can uh, figure out where is this child so he can come and worship this true king. But verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the Hebrew word there, when you see that, is to get your attention. Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. This light guides them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. If you are glad that God has entered the world through the child Jesus, say amen. Great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down. They worshipped him. They opened their treasures, presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They offered these gifts to him. But being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and be there, stay there. You stay there until I bring the word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed unto Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. 
that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, they tricked him. They've played a prank on him. Right? They've been, they've been tricked. He was exceedingly wroth. He was angry. And he sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and at all the coast thereof. Two years old and under, when did the star appear? When did the star appear? There's a great poem by T.S. Eliot who uh, grew up in uh, Massachusetts. His family had deep connections to Harvard University. In fact, his family had been ministers and ministers that uh, entered into apostasy and part of the Unitarian Church that doesn't, doesn't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and really just preaches a message of we all believe the same God and it's just a God of love and there's no, no repentance of sin and none of those type things. And T.S. Eliot grew up in this environment and, and had all these great connections there, very wealthy family, early 1900s with a family that, that went way back in the history of America. He goes to Europe as a young man, lives a decadent lifestyle. After the Great War, World War I, many of those young soldiers decided we're going to live it up because our countries may send us to slaughter one another again, and who knows how long we've got to live. And, and as those soldiers came back to America, World War I, and then after World War II, it changed things. It changed things because they'd been to Europe and they had seen the death and destruction and many of those young men, many of them turned to God, but many of them said, what is the point if this is what happens? And T.S. Eliot lived in Europe around the World War I time. And he lived a very decadent lifestyle. He was good friends with people like Ernest Hemingway and Ezra Pound and all these writers. And, and Eliot, though living a very sinful lifestyle, he turned to God. He found God. And he wrote this poem that you ought to read about the journey of the Magi. And he talks about how long and arduous and difficult the journey was for them. The heat of the desert in the daytime. The cold of the desert at night. But once they saw the child, was it worth it all? What it cost them? Was it worth it? The answer is yes. Yes. Now Herod seeks to destroy the child. He's been mocked of the wise men. And now, just as the wise men had to journey to see Jesus, now Jesus and his family must flee. They must make a hard journey as well. When? When did you see the star? How long have you been journeying? I must know. They murder the children under two. Then was fulfilled, verse 17 says, that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying in Ramah, there was a voice heard, not a voice of praise or laughter like we gave this morning when the children were on the video. Children bring joy into our lives, but this was not a voice of laughter. This was a voice heard of lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, but would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt 
and said, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go back. Go to the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And so he arose and took the young child and his mother and came unto the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, his son's going to be just as bad. Herod, when they found out he was ruling, Joseph was afraid to go thither. He's afraid to go there, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream. So he goes somewhere else. He goes back home, but where does he go? He turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. What time did the star appear? If you want to stir things up, do exactly like the wise men did. Show up in the palace of a king and ask a king, where is the king? These eastern wise men ask, where is the king? And it, and it stirs things up in our story because Herod is a violent, bloody ruler. In fact, if you study Herod, he had murdered countless members of his own family so that none would be a threat to his throne. Herod is not a ruler to sit around. He gets things done. He accomplishes things. And when he hears about this new king, this new threat, he does what he's always done. He sets out to kill and to stop any potential opposition to his rule, to his throne. Of course, the wise visitors, they are directed by God's hand to trick Herod, right? To trick them. And it takes a little wisdom, and God gives them the wisdom to know what they really need to do. Now, last night, uh, we had everybody in bed, and it was like 10 o'clock, and the boys were asleep, and Laura and I had been a long day, and we both crashed and, and uh, just, just went to sleep very quickly. And then, I didn't know it at the time, but, but last night at 1.30, I woke up with a start. If, you've, if you have kids, I, just, I would just want to know this, so I want to I see who can relate to this. If you have kids that have ever snuck into your bedroom and you didn't know they were there until you woke up and they were standing right over you, if you have ever experienced that, would you raise your hand? So I woke up, and it was like that bad priest in Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. My hand shot out, and I grabbed Ethan's heart and almost ripped it out of his body. I woke up with a star, and I did like that. And I look up, and there's this thing over me. And he goes, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm like, what are you doing? Couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep. I'm like, shoo, Laura wakes up. She slept through the whole thing. We would both be dead if it was up to her. I, I you know, Ethan, you know, he's not scared anymore. I'm not scared. Tell him to go back to bed. Uh, Great thing about when he's this age, it's just go back to bed. You don't have to get up and take him. It's like, go back to bed. He goes back to bed. This morning, Owen slept through all this. He didn't know any of this had happened. So breakfast this morning. Of course, remember, you got to imagine Owen missing his two front teeth. I said, Owen, do you know what happened last night? We told him what happened. Owen flashed the biggest grin. And he goes, Ethan's got to learn to trick you. He said, when I want to get in bed with Mama, I just sneak right up in the bed and get up right up next against her before you even know what's happened tricked the wise men they they trick Herod and this is not a man who you play games with this is not a man who likes being tricked this isn't a family affair where haha this is very funny this is a man who has killed so many 
including members of his own family. So he doesn't sit around. He may have been tricked, but he's not going to be thwarted because he is the ruler of his destiny. He is king of his own life. He is the one who runs the show. And so he does what he always does. He responds to being tricked by slaughtering all the children under two in Bethlehem which is a small village, but this still probably means 20 to 30 children in Bethlehem alone were slaughtered. And then you think the coast thereof, what does that mean? How many children had to die so that Herod could remain in control of his kingdom? Jesus would have been killed had God not warned Joseph. Are you glad that the Holy Spirit, when sin is going to devour us, or even there are stories when there are literal threats on believers' lives that, that when it's God's will, that there are times that He warns us to get away, to escape, to flee. If you're glad for that work of the Spirit, say amen. The Spirit comes in a dream. Joseph flees to Egypt, maybe to Alexandria. There was a large, we say maybe in Alexandria, because there was a large community of Jews, political refugees who had fled during Herod's reign, who opposed Herod's reign. So in Alexandria there in Egypt, there was a large community of Jews. Maybe he went there. What matters is we need to remember that Jesus began life as a refugee. Tom Petty had that song, you know you don't have to live like a refugee. You know you don't have to live like a refugee. Well, Jesus had no choice. He lived life on the run from the very start. And we see these refugees in our day and age that flee from the wars that that consume our earth. As believers, that should remind us that Jesus, too, began life as a refugee. Why does Matthew tell us this? What does God want us to know with this story? How is this story supposed to change your life? And I want to give you two big takeaways this morning, two things. Now, last week... I mentioned that there's something about the Christmas story that brings peace and joy to the human heart. However, today's story reminds us that joy and peace are not the only parts of the Christmas story. Oh, Jesus does bring joy and peace. He brings joy to these wise men. He will bring joy to these shepherds. He brings joy to the Holy Family. He brings joy to others. He offers hope and forgiveness. But like any true king... Jesus offers these things on His terms, on the terms of the Holy God, the God the Father that has sent Him. He offers hope and peace and love and mercy. And sinner, He calls out to you today, and He says your sins can be forgiven. If you're glad you can be forgiven, say amen. But it's on His terms because He is a king, and He's a true king. He is the king. And so He offers forgiveness to you today. But he offers it on his terms. You want peace, joy, and forgiveness? Then you must yield to Jesus. You must turn from your sin. You must trust Jesus. You must take your life, your purposes, your dreams, your goals, your sin, your folly, your mistakes, and in the best that you are, all of it, you must lay down and yield it to him. And he will give you joy and he will give you peace. But that is why the Herods of every age oppose Jesus because they are not willing to accept these terms. They would rather hold on to their sin. They would rather remain in charge. And so Jesus to them does not bring peace. They see him as a threat. 
And this is a takeaway. This is a part of the Christmas secret that we must remember in the midst of the excitement and the joy and the pleasure that Christmas lights and Christmas songs and Christmas plays and all these wonderful aspects of Christmas that that are fine. But we must not forget that there is a dual side to Christmas. And we must tell the world the truth that it does not want to hear. You must listen to the truth that God wants you to know. And that is that Christmas, while it brings joy and peace, that Christmas is always a threat. Because in Christmas, there is one king against the pretender kings of this world. The same evil. That's the first thing to know. First takeaway, Christ's kingdom is a threat. And we recognize it's true today. The same evil that led to the slaughtered babes of Bethlehem is still at work today. We know evil exists. We see sin around us. We see it within our own hearts. Oftentimes we see it without. We fight over who is to blame, right? Now catch this. Some people say it's just, it's just the rich and powerful's fault, right? People who say that, who say that all the problems are the rich and the powerful, they usually turn the poor and, and, and whatever minority groups, and that will be different depending on what country you live in, they usually turn them into the heroes, Right? That's what happens. What's the rich and powerful? So the heroes are these people. Other people say, no, no, no. The problem with sin in our world is it's the immoral people, usually elites that are immoral, and it's the negligent, right? It's the lazy people. That's what's wrong. That's why we have all these problems. And, and that often makes who the hero? Hardworking, decent, middle-class people. We then get to be the hero while the lazy, poor, and the immoral elites, they're the bad guys. Now, Herod is definitely an unjust ruler who is using power to slaughter his enemies. There is truth. There are rich and powerful that are to blame for a lot of the sin. And oftentimes it is within uh, those that, that are not, that don't have the power, that the heroes rise up. But the Bible makes clear that it's not just the rich and powerful. That is the sad thing of Jesus' story, that it won't just be the rich and powerful. It will be the common people that yell to crucify him as well. The Bible makes clear that God opposes those who oppress the poor. And Herod is doing this. And so there is a truth to that narrative that looks at the rich and powerful and says they, they, they are oppressors. And some of them are. And the Bible has verses that deal with this oppression and call it sin. And yet it's not just the powerful though. In fact, the Bible in its totality makes clear that all of humanity is responsible for the evil in the world. Every heart, every heart is wicked. Herod's reaction is the reaction of many of the rich and powerful, but it's also the reaction of others who are less powerful who will also try to kill Jesus. If you're glad that Jesus offers salvation, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're the dominant group or a minority group, if you're glad he came to save us all, say amen. Now, if you want to be the king, if you want to win at the game of thrones, you'd better kill everybody. That's why Herod is doing what he's doing, because if you want to win the game of thrones, you've got to kill off everybody, anybody who comes to make a claim on your kingdom. That's why many times it is the rich and powerful that are doing the oppressing because they have access to the means, right, to stop anybody who's going to take what they want. Only one absolute monarch can rule. 
but Jesus would grow up and preach to poor and rich alike. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, he said this to rich and poor, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now that statement confuses people. Why did Jesus say that? What he's doing there is showing you your supreme allegiance better be to me. Because Herod is right about this. There will only be one king in your life. Only one. Only one. And so Jesus says, if you don't love me more than everything else, then you're not mine. This statement confuses people. But what it is, is a calling of supreme allegiance to Jesus. And you know, we resist that call just like Herod does. I'm not rich and powerful like Herod. Now, compared to the history of the world, and compared to how the majority of people in the world still live today, I actually am rich, right? Rich is a relative term. Compared to a lot of the world, and definitely compared to history, I mean, I live in a palace, and the kind of food and options, I mean, I don't, I don't ever go hungry. I'm rich. I don't have the same access to power, though. I don't have the kind of access to power that Herod has, but yet I'm still as guilty because I resist the supremacy of Jesus in my heart as well. I create idols in my heart, and so do you. We create and serve the idols of money. We create and serve the idols of popularity. We make education king in our life. We make our friends king in our life. We can even make an idol out of that wonderful gift, the family. We can even make an idol out of spiritual work. And yet the true king is not found in any of these things. The true king is not found in the idols of your heart. It's found in Jesus. The imposter king, the imposter king Herod, he's threatened by the birth of this king. But what about you? Christmas confronts you too with the idols of sin in your heart. Are you threatened by this king? Those who belong to Jesus, they are to long for the return of the king. Those that actually actively serve him now, they await the return of the king. And yet those with Herod's hearts, Revelation shows us, they tremble and fear and oppose his coming as much as Herod did the first time. Where is this king. So as we sing the songs of Brother Cecil, as we celebrate with our families, remember that Christ's kingdom is joy and peace, but it is also a threat, a threat to the Herods of this world, and it is a threat to the idols of our heart. Number two, though, if this kingdom is a threat, if it is a threat, here's what is often misunderstood. Christ's kingdom is a threat, but Matthew includes this story so you can also, this very unique story, he includes it so you can also know that this kingdom comes in weakness. It is a threat, but not the type of threat that you would imagine. It is a threat, and the reason that Jesus so will confound the Pharisees and he will confound the scribes and he will confound Pilate and the Romans later, the reason that Jesus still confounds people today is because, yes, his kingdom is a threat, but it doesn't come the way that the world's kingdoms come. 
Christ's kingdom comes in weakness. Would you say that after me? Say weakness. We live under the first coming of Jesus. He has ascended, but we still, in one sense, live under that first coming that came in weakness. In the second coming, we are told that He will return in power to end all death, all suffering, all evil. He will return and finish the work that He began. But the first coming that we still live under, the second coming is yet to come. This first coming came not in earthly strength, but in weakness to a poor family of refugees. Jesus has no academic credentials. He has no military honors. He has no social status. In fact, when Jesus comes back from Egypt, his father sets down roots far away from royal power where he should have been exalted. He sets him down in Nazareth. Remember, he's not just the child born in Bethlehem in a manger. He is also called the Nazarene. Nazareth? Daniel, Daniel, Daniel would ask. Nathaniel would ask years later, Nazareth, can anything, I mean, come on, can anything good come from there? Why did he say that? Because he knew, like everybody else, a great teacher, prophet, king from Nazareth? You see, the world despises people from the wrong places with the wrong credentials because we all so desperately need to feel superior. But Jesus shows that's not the way of his kingdom. I want you to listen so closely as we wind this down. Listen to this because this, this is where the heartbeat of Christmas connects with what God had been doing for centuries. We need to feel superior But the birth of Jesus and his life, his return to Nazareth, shows us that's not God's way. God did not deliver his message of hope through Babylonians, Assyrians, Greeks, or Romans. He chose a tiny tribe called the Jews, the Hebrews. Goliath was not crushed by a mightier warrior. He's defeated by a boy shepherd. Naaman is not told to dip in the mighty rushing waters of the Euphrates. He's told to find his healing in the muddy water of the Jordan. The oldest son gets the prestige and wealth in the ancient world. It is the oldest son who's the apple of his father's eye. What does God do, though? God honors Abel and not Cain. God works through Isaac and not Ishmael. God's blessings fall on Jacob, not Esau, on Ephraim and not Manasseh. David rises while the elder brothers do not. God chooses an old, elderly woman, Sarah, not young Hagar. God smiles upon Leah not on Rachel. God brings honor to Leah, whom her husband Jacob doesn't even love. God's hand reaches down to Rebecca, who cannot have kids. God's hand reaches down to Hannah, who cannot have kids. God's hand reaches down to the mother of Samson, who cannot have children. Why? Why? Over and over again does God do this? Why does God choose the way of Nazareth for his son to be raised as opposed to the way of Jerusalem? Does God just love underdogs? Is that why the boy and the girl, the elderly woman, 
that nobody else can see? Is that why God sees them? Because he only loves underdogs? No. That's our story. We, we love stories about underdogs. Right, we, I don't know if you've seen the movie, when I was in high school, there's this movie, Rudy, and it's a true story, and Rudy is about this boy that wanted to play football, for, it's a true story, wanted to play football for Notre Dame so bad, back when Notre Dame was really good, and he wanted to play for them so bad, and everybody said, you can't, you're too small, and he was, he was too small, you can't play, and he went through all this adversity to get on the team as a walk-on, but the coach did not play walk-ons, would not play walk-ons, and he wanted so bad to just get on the field one time, one time. And the, the, the story of Rudy is the underdog who finally, I believe it's his last game of his career, he actually gets on the field and he actually makes a play. And the whole movie is about this guy getting on the field for, for just, just a couple of plays. That's, that's what it, the whole thing. And people love that movie. And people love to watch it today. Why? Because we love underdogs. Is that all God's doing? Is God just, is, 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 is all we're learning through this another story of underdogs? No, it's more than that. God, through working through a David, not a mightier warrior. God reaching down to elderly Sarah. God moving his son to Nazareth is about more than an underdog. It's about revealing to you the salvific power and the heart of God and how God chooses to move through us in weakness so that no man, no power gets the glory, but he alone is recognized for the God that he is. If he deserves our praise, say amen. It's not just another underdog story. If you think that, and by the way, the world is happy to accept that, Yes, Jesus, one more underdog story among many. No, no, no. This is about the power and heart of God. And he comes in weakness. Throughout his life, people keep asking Jesus, those like us who love him, keep saying, when will you take power? When will you save the world? By force. And Jesus responds, I'm not going to do that. And he tells them through parables and stories and sometimes directly, Jesus shows that he is going to work. The same way that his heavenly Father has always worked through weakness. Jesus says, I will lay my power down. I will not use it to enter this kingdom into being. I will lay it down. I will die at a cross. And in the weakness of the cross is where the weakness of the Christmas story coincides. He's born in weakness and this man dies in weakness. The one who made this world with all his power and might. Born into weakness, and he will die in weakness on a cross. Why? Because God has chosen the weak things, the foolish things, to confound the proud. He has chosen the weak things. This weak man, Jesus, this weak son of God, he is powerful, but he lays it down. Why? So that you could be reconciled to God. Why is it through weakness that he does this? Because he is coming a second time in power. And when he returns in power, you read the book of Revelation. The reason it caused a lot of people to fear and there are movies made about it and it continually comes up is because people read it and they are afraid because in it there is a king that returns in power and he vanquishes all enemies. He came in weakness, this child born in a manger. He fled in weakness as a refugee. He lived in the weakness of the backwaters. Why? So that his weakness would be your strength to stand when he returns again. When he calls his people home, he will come in strength. 
and those who know his name will return to him through the power of his weakness. What will save you on the great day of the Lord when you will give an accounting for your life? It is the weakness of the cross. So this Christmas, it is a welcome secret. It is a joyous secret. But it is a threatening secret. This is welcoming because no matter what you've done, no matter what type of hell you've raised or been a part of in this life, no matter what dark secrets reside in your heart that you don't want anybody to know about, no matter the pain and the suffering, no matter how messed up you are, if you repent of your sin and in weakness you come to Jesus, He will welcome you. And the point of all those things that God did in history through all these weak people Part of that was so you would know today that not only will He welcome you in your weakness, but He's been doing it for centuries and centuries and centuries. So the challenge of this unique story only found in Matthew is that you would know to stop glorifying the powerful people. Stop Glorifying the kings of money, power, influence. Quit idolizing those that are more beautiful than you. Quit thinking the lie that the devil tells. That you would only be happy if you had more intellect, more cultural power, more athletic power, more musical ability. Recognize that Christmas and the cross are about a kingdom that comes in weakness. And it is the weakness of Jesus that will enable every sinner to stand and be with him when he returns in power. Sinner. Church family. Quit trying to be king and queen. And let Jesus rule and reign. He does not rule and reign in your life. If He does not rule in your reign in your life, listen to me. I don't want you to enjoy this Christmas. If you have not confessed Him as Lord and Savior, you're not supposed to enjoy Christmas. If you do enjoy Christmas, it's because the devil has deceived you. Because Christmas is a message you will either serve yourself, you'll either be Herod, or like the wise men, you will serve me. Friend, this is the Christmas to give your heart to Christ. Who cares what's happened in the past? I mean, God cares. He cared enough that He came and died for you. Let it go. Church people hurt you. Let it go. Your parents hurt you. Let it go. It doesn't mean it will go away, but let it go and come to Jesus. He offers a kingdom come through weakness. And if you do not embrace this when he comes in power, it's too late.
next. Braden's going to play a song for us. I'm going to pray and they're going to go get the children and bring them back for communion. Why this song plays, why the music plays. Let him rule and reign. Come, we'll rejoice, we'll celebrate. Give your heart to Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? Father God, be with us. Be with this spirit that is in this place through your word. Minister to our hearts. Lord, if there's one sinner that needs to come, let him come. If there's one believer that needs to kneel and pray and find strength and power through the weakness of you, quit trying to figure it out and do it on their own. Lord, let them come. Keep your eyes closed. If you want to come and pray, listen, you come right now. Don't wait. Before we take communion, listen, there's time. Come and give your life to Christ.